Well, friends, this morning we continue to journey through the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, again, we're going to be covering some ground. And so I would invite you to open them uh, to Daniel chapter 3, where we're going to be reading a a familiar story to many of us. But uh, I'm just asking the Lord to open uh, our eyes to something afresh here today. But as you open there, uh, it was in the late 1930s when uh, a person named Joseph Stalin was at the height of his influence in the former Soviet Union. And it was pretty common practice to where uh, if they had a regional meeting, if his name was mentioned, there would be a standing ovation. People would stand and they would cheer. And, and, and what unfortunately happened was there became this tension or awkward moment where uh, people were like, all right, who's going to sit down first? <laughs> uh, because it wasn't a good thing to be the first one to sit down. So you can kind of imagine, you're like, hey, all right, okay, we've been doing this for 10 minutes. What do we do now, right? And, and, the, and honestly, this was a real tension. And I say that because I was reading a story this week about an old man who really couldn't support his own weight any further or any longer. And so he sat down. And he was taken note of and later arrested for being the first one to sit down. That was a thing. Or how about this one? A little later in the 30s, uh, in 1938, it was uh, Hitler's 49th birthday, April 20th, 1938. Uh, he went to Buchenwald concentration camp, and the soldiers there thought it would be fitting to celebrate him or to honor him by making everyone, when he arrived, remove their hats or berets or whatever they were wearing and honor the Nazi flag that was before them, prisoners and soldiers included. <clears throat> and there was one man by the name of Paul Schneider who decided he wasn't going to venerate uh, the Fuhrer, or uh, nor the Nazi flag, and so he did not. But he was met very quickly by 25 lashes with an ox hide whip. All right, so here's the reality. One of these people refused to worship a person long enough. The other one refused to worship this person at all, and they paid the price. Now, as I read this and as we read or hear these sorts of stories, in our piety, we'd probably be like, well, I wouldn't take my hat off and I would be the first to sit down. I wouldn't even stand up, right? But but this week as I'm reading these, I'm putting myself in that seat and I'm going, would I? Like, would I really not stand? Would I really not take my hat off if my life was in danger, if my family was in danger, if my home or belongings were in danger? Would I, would I really just kind of put my flag in the ground? I hope I would. But there's this question in me, it was like, or would I conform? You know, would I just go, well, you know what, God knows my heart, you know, and, you know, my outward action versus my heart. So, you know, I'd I'd probably participate, but he's put me in these places for a certain reason. It'd be good for me to just kind of keep that position. And and maybe I wouldn't, or or maybe I'd be the second to sit down. You know, I I don't know, but but I asked myself that question. and, And I wonder, do you feel that tension at all? Or are you just pretty convinced of what you would do in that moment? Anyway. It'll make sense to us why I'm bringing this up here in just a minute as we read Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to read 1 and then skip down 4 to 7. But uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and follow along with me. I'll read and we'll keep walking through this story. But here it goes. Ready? Daniel 3.1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, down to 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image of King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Pray with me as we get going here today. Lord, for many of us, this is a very familiar story. And I just simply pray that your Spirit would open our ears and our hearts to hear what you have for us today. Lord, something fresh, something new, or maybe something that we've forgotten over the course of time. And Lord, for some of us, this is the first time we've had to wrestle with this idea of worship as we are exiles. And I just pray uh, that you would show us yourself here and show us yourself as being the only thing worthy of worship. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would soften our hearts as we submit ourselves to your word. I pray that you would also uh, guide my words. And and Lord, uh, as I often pray, I pray that we will not leave here unchanged after we sit and look into this bread that you've given to us this morning to nourish us. And so we love you. Thanks for this time. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So if you remember where we ended last week, we're walking through Daniel chapter 2. And at the end of that chapter, essentially Nebuchadnezzar had a scary dream. Daniel was the only one who could interpret it, right? And at the end, uh, Nebuchadnezzar ends like this in verse 47. He says, Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So you might find it a little surprising that the first verse opens up with King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold and basically said everybody bow down to it, right? I mean, isn't that a little shocking? Praise God, your God is the one true God. Never mind, I want to make a golden image of myself and you have to bow down and worship. At the very least, it shows us the arrogance of our heart. It shows the fickle nature of the human heart. And what's even more fascinating is that Daniel, if you remember as he's unpacking this dream, he's he's telling about how this statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about uh, was crushed by this rock who we talked about later on would be Jesus in his kingdom But it starts off with this head of gold and then the metals or the materials become less pure, uh, less precious as it goes down. And he says, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, that head of gold, that's yours. That's you. That's representing you in your kingdom. So I don't think it's a surprise that Nebuchadnezzar got a little squirrely and fearful and said, you know what? I'm going to go build a statue that represents me and my kingdom. But instead of just the head being gold, I'm going to make the whole blasted thing gold. And he made it 90 feet tall right? What a twist and what a turn. And what happens here is saying every time you hear these instruments go off, every, and did you hear the language tribe, tongue, and nation? Every single one of you needs to hit the ground and worship it. And if you don't, what does he say is going to happen? I'm going to throw you in the burning, fiery furnace. I think the terms burning, fiery furnace happens nine times. There's some emphasis there. As you hear repeated language in your Bibles, just know the author, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wants you to pay attention to what he's saying. And here, at least, he's saying there is uh, repercussions if you don't bow to this idol. Enter these exiles, these people who are followers of Yahweh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they kind of walk into the scene and they hear these things, it creates a discernible problem immediately because they adhere to God's word. They believe and follow what the God of the universe says to them. And here's what they say in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. None. Zero. And so we have immediate tension in this story, don't we? 
worship a false god, or die. Now for us, it's kind of hard to go, okay, idolatry. How does that link up to our current context? But part of the reason I told those first two stories is because really those two stories about worshiping these men is a picture of worshiping a false god. Now admittedly, it's still hard for us to link up there because we don't live, at least in our current culture on this dirt in Dresher, Pennsylvania, in an authoritarian rule where we're forced to worship. But, but nevertheless, that's what was happening there. But even Paul brings it even closer to home as he talks about things like greed and envy as a form of idolatry in the New Testament. And Tremper Longman, quoting a man named Paul Tillich, says this, A person's god or idol is the thing or person that one is most concerned about, thinks the most about, or affects one's life the most. Let me read it again. A person's god is the thing or person that one is most concerned about, thinks the most about, or affects one's life the most. When we slow down and double-click on that in our own lives, does it make you a little uncomfortable? Is that person or thing always the God of the universe? Not for me. Just confessing it to you. My heart is prone to wander. Bill Bright, the founder of the organization I used to work with, Crew, uh, as we went out and we shared the gospel, there was a picture that we often used to, to put before people, and, and it was a chair. We called it a throne. It was a very rough-looking throne. But, but we would always ask, who or what is on the throne of your life? And that was just a good entrance into sharing the gospel and our need for God to reform our hearts. And, and the question and the answer was oftentimes self or something else. But as we share the gospel, we're saying, hey, what does it look like for Jesus to become the king of our lives? John Calvin says this. He says that the human mind is a factory of idols, constantly pumping out something new to worship. And so our idols today can be in the negative. It could be our addictions, right? The things that we run to, to self-medicate and to cope that slowly over the course of time grab a hold of our lives, right? And so in the negative, uh, that is an idol. But there are also idols that are positive things. Take, for instance, self or money or comfort or control, sexuality, our rights, our safety, our nation. Those aren't necessarily bad things. But as I've heard one pastor say, a good thing that becomes a God thing then is a bad thing. A good thing becomes a God thing, becomes a bad thing. There's two ditches that you're going to hear us talk about as we use these ideas of exilic living or being an exile. We said if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you are an exile. That's what Peter talks about. Hebrews talks about, right? And the two ditches we will usually fall into as we live in a pluralistic culture is we're either going to shake our fist and confront that culture and say, you're wrong, you're evil, you're terrible, right? And we spent a a little bit of time the last couple of weeks saying that's not necessarily the posture, the humble posture of an exile. But the other ditch we can fall into is conformity, is conformity. As we live as exiles in a pluralistic society, our temptation is to conform to the idols of the culture in which we live. Friends, we are all worshipers, and we are all right this moment worshiping something with our beings. The sad part is, is that as humans, we typically conform and worship that which is unworthy not the God of the universe. Here's what I think Daniel wants us to see. Here's a couple more repeated terms. In chapter one, or in verse 1, 
Do you know what Nebuchadnezzar says of this idol that he sets up? It's an idol that he made. In verse 15, he's telling Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bend down to it. He goes, this idol that I've made, this statue that I've made. And then Daniel uses the term set up nine times in this saying, Nebuchadnezzar set it up. He set it up. He set it up. And part of the reason he does that is to show us the futility of the things that we worship if it is not the God of the universe. Nebuchadnezzar made it. A dude made it. Something that we make is not worthy of our worship. As one person said, it's as worthy of our worship as your artificial knee, if you've had a knee replacement, right? Do you worship your knee? I hope not. That would be weird if you worshiped your knee. But that knee is just as worthy of worship as a golden statue that gets thrown up on the plains of Babylon. So what will happen? Will God's people bow? Will they burn? Here's where Daniel's taking us. He's taking us to see that God alone is worthy of our worship and able to deliver us. That God alone is worthy of our worship and able to deliver us. And we see this in three different ways in this passage. First, when we face pressure. Second, when we face uncertainty. And third, when we face the furnace. When we face pressure, when we face uncertainty, and when we face the furnace. So first, let's look at when we face pressure. And this is verses 1 to 15. So here's the four pressures that we see God's people under as they are being tempted to worship a false god. We see pressure from authority, pressure to conform, the pressure of malice, and the pressure of intimidation. We've already seen the pressure from authority. Nebuchadnezzar, this scary dude who just keeps getting mad, right? Fiery furnace, if you don't bow to me. He is making laws, right? Authoritative laws to force people to worship something that is not God. And friends, I will tell you, as exiles, there will be laws that are passed that that are going to butt up against God's law and His true authority. There's also pressure to conform. I've already talked about it, but in verse 7, we can't get away from this language where he says, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped this God. Have you ever faced peer pressure? You know, students, have you ever walked into the lunchroom your first day, right, of middle school or high school, and you're just going, where do I sit? Right, there's the, the open table, and then there's everybody else's table. And that pressure to conform and match whoever it is just to kind of fit in, it is overwhelming. Every tribe and tongue and nation in Babylon are bowing down and worshiping this idol. Do you not think that pressure was overwhelming for God's people to conform in that moment? In order to see these other two pressures, pick back up with me in verse 8. We're going to read through 15. Let's see if you can see them. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, 
Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image which I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you don't worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? All right. Here's the other two pressures. There's the pressure of malice, right? Did you see that in verse 8? The Chaldeans, you remember last week, the Chaldeans were the one who Daniel and his friends, when he interpreted the dream, said, hey, um, uh, to the to the king's guard, he says, don't go kill all the Chaldeans. I'm going to basically go rescue them. So he saved their lives, and this week, they want to kill him. Not Daniel, but the three friends. He says he comes forward and maliciously accused the Jews. That term, maliciously accused, it's an idiom back then, which I found interesting. It, it means they ate their pieces. I don't really know what that means, but it doesn't sound good, right? It means it's like they, they want to devour them in malice. Have you ever had someone attack you because of your faith? Show you malice, not because you responded poorly to something they said, right? That's different. But because of your faith in Jesus, has someone ever attacked you? Have you seen someone else attacked? That's one of the pressures that exiles feel. And then the last one, how terrifying is Nebuchadnezzar? And this dude, he is just absolutely terrifying. He's burning with anger, right? It's the pressure of intimidation. He's intimidating. He's flexing on them. Here's what's really fascinating about this. Did you see what God's people are not asked to give up? They're not asked to give up the worship of their God. He doesn't say, quit worshiping your God. He just says, tack on worship of our gods to yours. Isn't that fascinating? In a pluralistic society, we're actually not asked to give up worship of our God, right? But I think we're often asked to kind of tack on worship of another God on top of the worship of the one true God. God's people also had every reason to conform. Think about the pressures that they're facing in that sense. God had raised them up to an influential position. And as exiles, this would be critical, right? They could have very easily said, God, we're just going to bow, right? Just so we can hold this position. We need to like protect our people, right, God? But they didn't. They trusted the Lord and who he was and where he was taking them. So let me just ask you this. What pressure are you facing to bow to the idols of our day. What pressures are you currently facing to bow to the idols of our day? Well, I love this transition to the next point in verse 15, where Nebuchadnezzar just, he throws down the gauntlet for God. He said, who's the God who will deliver you from my hands? Come on. Come on, guys. Right? Oh, here it comes. Here's the second point. God is worthy of worship and able to deliver not just when we face pressure, but also when we face uncertainty. And let me read this to you, and just know that as you read this, if you go back to study it, these three verses are really the meat and potatoes of this passage. This is the theological understanding of the object of the faith of these three men. Here's what it says. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, listen to this, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Ha! Right? If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, 
be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. All right, so the reason this bullet point is when we face uncertainty is, is really they're sure of God's ability, aren't they? I mean, verse 17, they said, well, verse 16, we don't even need to answer you, right? But then they say, uh, our God is able not just to deliver us from this oven that you've built, but from you, crazy man, right? He can deliver us from both of these things. They are certain of God's ability, but they're uncertain of God's purpose. Did you see that in verse 18? But if not. Friends, it's easy for us to read this story in reverse, to know the outcome, but as they are standing in front of the oven, they're not sure they're going to survive this. They're not sure. They're facing uncertainty, but if not. Friends, have you ever faced uncertainty with God? God, I know you're able to heal or to provide or whatever it may be, but I'm not quite sure you're going to do it. Isn't that the hardest place to submit to God's will? Isn't it? That's where these brothers are right now. It's easy for us to look at these three men and go, oh, I just want that type of courage, right? We just want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know what their blood pressure was like as they're standing in front of that furnace, but friends, I don't think the courage is what we need to be going after, or at least to emulate these three men. They are imperfect people. In fact, I would argue that their courage came from the object of their faith. And in fact, I think that's exactly how this text is written. Now, let me talk about what faith is real quick. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And it's really focused on the object of our faith. Spurgeon says this. He says, Faith is a conduit, a pipe, or a channel by which the riches of the gospel are transported into our heart. That faith produces work to withstand pressures. And so maybe I put it this way. You've heard me tell my Frozen Lake story before. It's been very recent. I'm going to do it again because, honestly, we don't really probably remember much of what I say from week to week. So you're like, what a fresh story, Anthony. Um, so, you know, from Virginia, lakes don't freeze solid, right? We get like a little crusting. Uh, and then when we go up to New York to this senior trip that we took, they're like, you can go walk across the lake. It's totally safe. I'm like, no, I ain't giving into that. I don't, I've seen movies. I know what happens you, underneath and, you know, it's, it's scary, right? So, so, uh, we, we sit in there and they're like, hey, it's frozen. There's cars driving on it. You can go do it. I was like, I don't believe you. So I go out with my friends and remember conformity and peer pressure. It's a beast. I get to the edge of the lake and I do see cars driving on it. So I'm like, okay, maybe. But like, my faith was very small, right? The size of a mustard seed, if you will, as I'm just kind of like, you know, like, oh, okay, good, good. And I, I keep going and I keep walking. And, and as I have that faith, I start to grow in my confidence. Why? Because I grow in my confidence of the object of my faith. That courage is the fruit of, of the trustworthiness of the object in which I put my faith. My faith started the size of a little teeny mustard seed. And I did not create that fruit of courage. And in a way, I think that's what Spurgeon is saying, and I think that's what these three men are actually seeing. They've seen over the course of their lives this object of their faith prove faithful time and time again, and they're able to walk out on that lake. I cannot read this passage and not think of my friend Ashley Frierson. 
Ashley Frierson was a woman who was at this church for many years, gifted Bible teacher, and, and in her 30s was diagnosed with cancer and, and fought a long battle uh, against this disease, which eventually took her earthly life in 2018. And as I was preparing for the memorial service, uh, I went back and I listened to all of her women, uh, women's Bible study talks, and she was just an amazing teacher. And there was one talk as she was in the middle of this battle where she she references this very passage. And she's talking about her struggle with cancer. And she said, God is able to deliver me from this, but if not, I will follow him. And we saw that play out as she fought this battle for the rest of her earthly life. Ashley's hope and courage and these three men's courage came from the faith in this object that we see three things of. This God is not object, it's a person. In this passage, we see the power of God, the freedom of God, and the truth of God. The power of God, God is able. God is God enough to save us if he wills. But the second point, and this is probably the hardest, there's also the freedom of God. That God has got enough to make his own decision. What we see here is they're humble enough to submit to them, right? Even if it means death. Now let me just say this. If our God is beholding to us, if he walks away from us when we don't get what we want, that genie in the bottle moment, then we're not actually worshiping God. We're worshiping ourselves. He submits to us in that scenario. And I don't mean to to be harsh. And I know that I'm messing with the fine china of our lives. There are so many people in this room who are grieving. But there is a place where we must strain to see the freedom and goodness of God, even in the hard realities and providences of our lives. Here's a third thing we see, is we see them have faith in the truth of God. Did you see that in 18? If not, We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. They're just like us. God's truth is the same truth that we rely on. They were relying on the written word of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. And they treated that as truth to the point where they were willing to die for it. You see that? They didn't go, oh, this was written 800 years ago. It's culturally irrelevant. It's not modern enough, right? No. They said, That truth, it's God's truth, and it's still truth today. And that is the cry of the exile's heart as well in 2022. And so, friends, let me just ask this. What is your faith in? What God is your faith in? Is it in the power of God? Is it in the freedom of God and in the truth of God? Or is it in the opposite of that? Is it in the weakness of idols, the bondage of idols, or the lies of idols? Here's a third and final point. God is worthy of our worship and able to deliver us when we face the furnace. This is verses 19 to 30. Just just kind of buckle up. This is going to be a few extra words than what you're used to in reading, but it's more important for you to hear God's word than my words. And so just sit back, listen, enjoy, but here's the rest of the story. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. 
And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God's. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, there's a shift, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any other god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid to ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. All right. So, um, so much we could say about this section. I'm just going to focus in on a few items. First of all, when he says, fired up that oven seven times hotter, they weren't sitting there with a thermometer being like, okay, are we had seven times yet? Uh, what it means, seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. So it's essentially saying, he fired that puppy up as hot as it could get, right? And so here's what we see. First of all, we see him show us that God can protect his servants and he can do it better than any false gods we could worship. Verses 20 and 22, what do you see? Uh, basically, Nebuchadnezzar's strong men who he sent to serve him by throwing them in the furnace, they got burnt to a crisp. Whereas God's people were delivered in verse 27. And I don't know if you picked up on the language, but whenever you see detail like this, the Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention. He says it had no power over their bodies. Their hair wasn't singed. Their cloaks weren't harmed. They didn't even smell like smoke. He wants you to know how full-orbed the deliverance of God is in these three men's lives. To the point where Nebuchadnezzar himself claims it in verse 29. He says, there is no other God who is able to rescue in that way. The second thing we see is God flips and will flip the curse of the nations. Throughout, we see every tribe, tongue, and nation being forced to bow. That's a curse. And you'll go back to Genesis chapter 12, and, and God's call to his people, starting with Abraham, is to be a blessing to the nations. And worshiping this false God will not ever be a blessing. But by the end, Nebuchadnezzar is commanding every tribe, tongue, and nation to bow down to Yahweh the one true God. And this is a precursor of what will one day happen in Revelation 7-9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, and people, and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, that's Jesus, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. Friends, we're watching the story of redemption play out in Babylon through God's people. And here's the reality, friends, that God often uses our suffering to bless the nation. Persecution is one of the main ways God's gospel goes out into the rest of the world. Acts chapter 8, the gospel is only in Jerusalem. Persecution arose, and guess what? It spread to Judea and Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. And here's the third part, and this is the part I think is important for us to wrestle with as we are walking through the times where we feel God's severe providences is that God is with us when is when it is as hot as it can get. And the reason I say that is it really circles around that verse 25 where there is a fourth person who looks as though it is a son of the gods or God who shows up with his people, not outside of the furnace, but in it. A lot of people would say that, uh, a lot of commentators say, we believe that this is actually Jesus himself. A Christophany is one of the words that's used. But the reality is, and we need to be honest, we can't prove that from this text. But, but it's pretty commonly understood that it is at the very least a reflection of God with us, of Emmanuel, of Jesus himself. What we see in this picture is that God is with us in order to save us from the flames in order to also be with us as we face the flames. Trimper Longman says this, The Christian cannot help see the prefigurement of Jesus Christ, who came to earth to dwell in a chaotic world and who even experienced death, not so that we might escape the experience of death, but that we might have victory over it. Friends, we might not face the flames of persecution like these three men, but we will face the trials of death, every single one of us. And what we know from Jesus Christ, God with us, is that on the cross, he faced the ultimate flames of judgment. And if we trust him in faith, we take on his perfect record, and on our behalf, he suffered judgment and punishment so that we don't have to. That is the Christian's deliverance. It's not from earthly suffering, and it's not from death. It's from eternity, apart from the God of the universe. Here's the second thing we see, is that that this Christ figure that we see in the flames with them, is this picture of God being with us in the flames. Dale Ralph Davis says this, Christ did not keep them out of the furnace, but found them in it. He does not always shield you from the distresses and dangers, but it is in the loneliness, in the betrayal, and in the loss that the fourth man comes and walks with you. So friends, Daniel today is inviting us to worship the only thing worthy of our worship, the God of the universe, through faith in Jesus Christ. He shows us that God is able to deliver us when it it is as hot as it can get. With all that in mind, can I just finish with this one scripture? It's, It's another letter written to exiles. But it's this picture, if you have Jesus in mind, of the promise that he offers to his people. We've, sang it, we've sung it already this morning, but it says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame will not consume you. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that you will unearth in our hearts any place where we are worshiping and counting as more worthy anything other than you. 
Lord, would you reveal the lie of those idols? Would you convince us that they are not worthy of our lives, that they are not worthy of our worship? And Lord, I pray that as we see this picture of Jesus having gone through the flames on our behalf and being with us as we face the heat of whatever trials it is that we're under, Lord, would you remind us that you are with us, that you do not forsake us, that because of your presence, those flames will not overcome us. Lord, thank you for this time and thank you for your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen.